everybody. Welcome to The Undiscovered You, a podcast for 20, 30, and 40-year-old people who feel like they have so much more to offer, but are somehow stuck where they are. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnston, and this season we'll be speaking to and about some marvelous mentors. Today, I'm extremely excited to have Professor Bo Rutledge, who is the Dean of the Law School at the University of Georgia, joining me today. So hi, Bo. Hey, Kimberly, it's great to see you. So Bo started his legal academia career at the Catholic University Columbus School of Law in 2003, where I first met him. And Bo, that was your first kind of step into teaching. Is that right? Yeah, I had, I had done, maybe dipped my toe in the water uh, when I was in Aberdeen, Scotland as a graduate student, but that was certainly my first uh, spring into the deep end as a, as a law teacher in all the three. And I believe that you won Professor of the Year four years running just from the moment you stepped in the door. <laughs> it was a couple of years, and uh, it was it was just a, it was a great group of students. Um, you know the old adage: uh, if if you love what you do, you never work another day. And being able to teach students like you and and all of those students in those early early years at Catholic kind of just showed me how much. Kind of teaching was a calling that uh, that I've sort of loved doing for 20 years now. And then you've moved into University of Georgia and you're a professor there for a bit. And then how long have you been the dean for? So I became the dean on January 1 of 2015, which was roughly about six, seven years after I arrived here at the faculty. And before that, I mean, I, looking at your resume, basically it is every law student's dream resume. So we're looking at undergraduate at Harvard. Um, and then you did a postgraduate, but this was not just a postgraduate. It was a, it was a rotary scholarship. Is that right? That's right. So uh, when I was in my undergraduate studies, uh, I was kind of one of those kids who didn't quite know what they wanted to do and sort of fell into studying American government. And pretty late in my studies took a series of courses in ethics that I just found profoundly interesting. And so I kind of resolved if the opportunity ever presented itself to go study ethics, I'd do so and was fortunate enough to apply to this amazing program that the Rotary Foundation runs that sends kids around the world uh, to go study, to be kind of ambassadors to their host countries and received one to go uh, study abroad in Scotland. And it changed my life, uh, not only because of the opportunity that presented, but also that was the place where I met the woman who then became my wife. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about her in a bit. <laughs> um, so for, moving on from there, um, you went to decide to go to law school. So tell me a bit about that decision. What, what made you go, decide to go to law school? So I guess I was one of those kids who, when you read a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, it, it ignites a spark in you about the difference that a lawyer makes in our world, uh, both in terms of helping individuals with their problems, but, but also doing so where you would treat uh, a prince and the pauper the same way just because they're your client. And so I sort of entered college thinking that I probably would want to attend law school and graduated a little bit more unsure. And so Part of the reason why I didn't just kind of jump straight into law school was I felt like I sort of needed to figure that out. 
And so my first job out of college was to go work in the state of California. They had a program that hired recent college graduates to work in the executive branch. And in the course of that year, I saw how important lawyers were to the work of government. You know, over the course of my time there, I did not see a major decision get made without the lawyer being in the room. And uh, I, I met a very important mentor, uh, a guy named Larry Bolton, who really kind of took me under his wing. And, and, that and those two things definitely sort of pushed me over the edge to say, yeah, law school is probably where you need to go. Interesting. I actually have a quite a similar background in terms of getting into law because I did international studies and then I moved up. I worked in the UN for a bit and then I came down to DC and worked in politics. And what I saw was that, again, the lawyers were everywhere. They were the lobbyists. They were involved in every political decision. And it was constantly, if you wanted to get anywhere in DC, I felt like you needed to get a law degree. And so that's how I ended up actually going to law school in the end as well. So interesting similarities there. And you went to law school at Chicago. Is that right? University of Chicago. Yep. I went to the University of Chicago. You know, I had to, I supported myself through law school and was fortunate enough to get a scholarship from them. And, and that kind of financial opportunity was, was pretty significant in terms of both my decision where to attend, as well as helping me graduate with a, a debt level that kind of let me make choices um, for the rest of my life. Yeah, I'm very jealous of that because I'm still paying off my law school loan. So, <laughs> well, when, when, when the podcast gets a million downloads, you have advertisers lined up out the door. Um, we'll be good to go. So, I think the question that I have to ask though was Did you have Barack Obama as a professor while you were there? Was he before your time or after your time? Or did you just not have him as a professor? So, I, I, I have probably the worst possible answer, which is that I did not have President Obama as a professor, even <laughs> though I had the opportunity. Oh, no. So at the time, and this is sort of a lesson to all your listeners, um, you seize every opportunity to get to know the adjunct professor in your life because they could become president one day. You know, he was, <laughs> he was I, I think, in the Illinois legislature and maintaining uh, a practice but he was teaching uh, constitutional law, but Chicago had lots of constitutional law professors. And, and one of the other professors who also became a great mentor to me uh, was kind of teaching a parallel section. So okay. I took Professor Strauss's section rather than then Senator Obama's session. Um, but no, I, I can remember being in the elevator with him and saying hello, and that was, that was about the closest I came. Oh, wow. Well, I know that you're very passionate about the Constitution as well. So you obviously got some good teaching there, regardless of which professor it was. Um, so you left law school and then you went on to, again, just follow following on this dream resume. You went to go clerk for a federal judge and then ended up working for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas as his clerk. So tell me a little bit about that. Like what uh, there are so few people that clerk for Supreme Court justices what is that like to be in the Supreme Court, to be a law student in the moment? Just, just give us a bit of flavor of that. To answer your question, what I would say about working at the court more than anything else is that it was extraordinarily humbling. Hmm. And, and one of the things that I learned from, from both of the judges whom I had the, the honor of working for 
was was the value of modesty. And what I mean by that is, you know, whatever whatever we go on and do, whether that is become a judge, become a successful professional, you know, run a, an award-winning podcast, right? <laughs> we, we, we are all in some sense um, imperfect human beings. We are scared human beings. We are flawed human beings. And I think that, you know, you have to take the work, whatever it is, whether at the court or otherwise, extraordinarily seriously. But I think more than anything else, what with that year of kind of walking through those marble halls, like it was going to the office taught me was the importance of modesty in our professional lives and modesty in our overall lives. Because at the end of the day, what, what, what I saw the judges doing, and as I've now seen myself in my own professional life, all, all you can ask is that you try to do the best you can with the tools that are given to you. That's a huge, that's a huge topic that we talk about on this podcast. And you've just hit on some major themes that we look at. One is your network, how to properly use your network. Again, marvelous mentors, what we're talking about here now, um, that idea of the value of modesty. So I, I just, I think that is so powerful because there are so many people out there that are trying to make a name for themselves, trying to push people aside, trying to actually do more. And sometimes people doing that causes you to get stuck. And actually, if you're able to be humble, if you're able to be modest, if you're able to be the one that mops the floor when it needs to be mopped and do the job that needs to be done when it needs to be done, that gets noticed. And you're not the person that's jostling and someone comes alongside of you and says, actually, there's this great opportunity. I think you'd be great for it. And it's kind of also just being open to those opportunities and being ready to say yes, because it's scary to say yes. And, you know, if somebody says, oh, have you thought about applying for this job out in California, you know, and you were, you were in the middle, I don't know where you were in your relationship, but let's say you're in a long distance relationship and you're moving out to California and you're making all these life decisions. It's hard to say yes sometimes, but sometimes saying yes is the right thing to do. So um, you actually have a Wikipedia page on you. Did you know that? No. Have you Googled yourself? Okay, Google yourself. No. You, have a, you literally have a Wikipedia page. I'm pretty sure there might be a fan club page out there somewhere. People should um, not Google themselves. I'm no, just... no, do not ever Google yourself. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> not advice that we're giving here. Um, but I mean, it's it's no it's no wonder you do. I mean, this is, this is an incredible resume that you have. But I just want to talk about how even though you've done all of this, you are one of the most humble, unassuming people I've met. And when you came and you were a law professor at the Columbus School of Law, I remember we were all just astounded that we got you. We were so excited that you came and you were this young professor and you poured into your students in a way that no other professor had ever done. And I take real issue with the Socratic method in general um, in law schools. And I think that it can be used as a sword and I think it can be used as a teaching tool. And I think a lot of professors use it as a sword to basically make you feel stupid and drag you down. And it's an awful tool that they can use. And I think some professors use it in an amazing way to help build you up and actually learn. And I think that's something that you did incredibly well, not only with me, but with, with all of your students, which is why you won professor of the year. I'll bring it up again because you totally deserved it. And, um, and I think one of the things that I, I kind of, recognize. So when, when I started pulling this podcast together around Marvelous Mentors, 
there were people that stood out immediately to me who I had asked to be my mentor, who I had sought out to be my mentor. And, and we'll, we're speaking to them on this as well. But I kind of looked back and said, who was my first mentor? And, you know, besides maybe my mom and some friends and those kind of people, like who was the person outside of my immediate family and group of group of colleagues that was that was my mentor? And it was you. And this is why I, I actually call you this, 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 this is going to be called the unexpected mentor, because I was surprised by that. And I was trying to think of the two ways that you mentored me were very different. So one of them is in being my professor, taking the time to speak to me, um, you sat down and you taught me how to be a better law student. And one of the things that we've already talked about is using those talents that you possess. And there's a fabulous quote I love that I'll just bring up here, which is use the talents you possess for the woods would be a quiet place if no birds sang except the best. And I just, I love that quote. But um, one of the things I think you kind of noticed about me is that I am a, um, I'm a very outgoing person. I am way off the scale in terms of extrovert. And I was doing a very introverted way of studying. So I would sit by myself on the quiet floor in the library, going through my notes, going through my books, highlighting everything, trying to digest it and memorize it. And you just said to me, you know, do you have a study group? Do you, do you actually meet with anybody to talk to them, to process things the way that I can tell you process things? Because you keep coming to my office and trying to process things with me. Can you please find some students to go do that with? But through that process, what you allowed me to do is find what my strengths were, apply them to law school. And actually, I ended up running after that. And my GPA soared. And I was able to graduate with a much higher GPA than I ever would have had you not come and been professor at the law school. So first off, thank you. Just very publicly, thank you for the amazing person that you are and how much you fed into us as a student body. And I have to tell you one other thing. I've met somebody recently who knows you and was like, he's a legend. And I met her through my current work. I'll tell you about that some other time. But I have to tell you, everybody that I have met that knows you thinks you're a legend, thinks you're amazing. And it's not because of this incredible resume. It's because the way that you give yourself to others and the way that you help others become better at being themselves. So from all of us, thank you. You're making me cry. <laughs> It's all true. <laughs> so I just, the, uh, that kind of mentoring to me though, is, is the type of thing that, that really changes people's lives. And I think that's what I want to bring out in this podcast is that mentors, whether you've asked them to be your mentor, whether it's for part of a formal program that you're involved in, or whether it's somebody that's actually mentored you and you didn't even know it until, you know, 20 some odd years later, when you look back and say, you know, actually he was my first mentor. And I just wondered for you, is there, is there anything kind of in your life that you've experienced with mentors that, that kind of resonates, it kind of falls from that? You know, I, I appreciate the, the various mentors whom I've had in my life and, and they range from family members to colleagues, to professors, to judges, to priests, to folks whom you just meet by, by chance almost. And I guess in, in thinking about my experience, both being advised by mentors and in advising people, we should never feel like the opportunity to learn has stopped. Mm. In other words, 
we, we can get to stages in life where we feel comfortable professionally, or maybe we feel we've topped out professionally, or we feel like our personal lives are so complete with family and, and relationships that we're just kind of in this equilibrium. And, and that never changes. I mean, as you know, our, our children grow and my parents get older, I'm constantly confronted with new kind of questions and dilemmas and things where I feel ill-equipped or unprepared. Mm-hmm. And, and to recognize that we can always be learning from folks. So that's what I would say as far as having mentors in your life. Now, in terms of mentoring others, in the sum total of all of our individual experiences lies learning moments, teaching moments for the next generation. When when we talk about mentorship at the law school, I often liken it to the experience of hiking a Himalaya. And true disclosure, I've never actually hiked a Himalaya, but I've read about it. <laughs> but my, my sense is that that there are lots of different ways to sort of ascend to the summit. It's not like there's one single path. And in some ways, what path you ascend, what summit you strive for is a very personal choice. And the second thing that I understand to be true about hiking a Himalaya is that it's almost indispensable that you have a Sherpa, right? And a Sherpa (laughs) is not just your average guide, right? They have a lot of experience hiking lots of different paths toward the summit. They develop an intensely personal relationship with the person whom they're accompanying on the journey, that it's not just kind of walking around at the map, Mm -hmm. but you're discovering a bond. And I think that if we look at our relationships with our mentors as hikers to Sherpas, Mm -hmm. and we look at our relationships with people whom we're mentoring as Sherpas to hikers, Um, I think that's been a very helpful framing device for me because it captures something essential about the relationship while at the same time recognizing that the particular destination or the particular journey is a highly personal one for each individual. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we talk a lot about how you have different mentors for different things. And sometimes you have multiple mentors. So, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily have multiple Sherpas, but you'd have a different Sherpa for a different area. So if there was, if you decided to take a different route or you decided to veer off, it may be that the Sherpa says, this is as far as I can take you because actually I don't know that part. It's the same kind of idea with a mentor. And you have mentors for a season. Some are very long extended seasons and some are very short seasons or very, you know, even a few days, even it's just kind of sitting down with somebody and having them mentor you for a bit. So I, I love that analogy. It's fab. And um, so the other half of our mentoring relationship, which I find hilarious, and this is what I said we were going to come back to, is on long distance dating. So I don't know that you ever thought that you were going to be considered a dating guru in your life. (laughs) But I definitely know that uh, when George, my husband and I were long distance, so as you and Birgit were, so I'd love to go back to that story and talk a little bit about your personal life, if you don't mind delving into that a bit. Um, But George, my husband, was living in Ireland and he was living over in Belgium and I was in D.C. 
And we were at a time when it was, we didn't have WhatsApp. We didn't have um, even strong internet. How old am I? Uh, we actually did phone calls because they were too expensive on cell. We did them at a landline at a prescribed time. I think it was actually advice you gave me was that you told me find a time that works for both of you and have him call you at that time or you call him at that time because then you have that time set aside for them. Otherwise, it sometimes can feel like an interruption in your life because you're living two very separate lives, but you're trying to develop this life together. So great advice. I'd like to pass that on to all my listeners who are in a long distance relationship, regardless of whether you're on a cell phone or a landline. But tell me a bit. So you were in Aberdeen, you said, and that's where you met Birgit. Tell me about that. So this definitely is not a not a dating advice show. If you need, <laughs> no, need a dating advice guru, uh, <laughs> there are definitely some other people we should call. Look, so it was the fall of '93. I showed up in Aberdeen, Scotland, with four suitcases and a credit card, and had this little scholarship. And uh, I met in late September. Uh, a woman from Austria. Her name was Birgit. We had a, a truly just magical year together. We were both studying abroad. We were head over heels in love. But we were at a stage in our lives where, for a variety of reasons, we were not ready to make a, a lifelong commitment and certainly not short circuit our professional training. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the summer of 94, she returned to Austria to resume her studies to become uh, a teacher of English and German. And I returned to Chicago to commence my law studies. And therein began uh, a, at times very painful, but at times very enriching three years of long distance. Mm. Uh, you know, thinking about your comment regarding phone calls, so our, 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 our deal was we could only talk once a week because if you weren't careful, a phone call was about $2 a minute at that time. <laughs> and, 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 and there was limited email and certainly no WhatsApp, no FaceTime. And so, so what we did was we wrote each other a letter every day for three years and we read the same book and we would rotate picking the book and no matter how tired each of us was at the end of each day, we would read a couple of pages. It, it meant that when we went to sleep at night, we would be thinking about the other. And it always gave us something to talk about because we were reading the same book at the same time. Uh, and then the third thing we did was, as you say, we had, we had a designated time. It was either like a Saturday night or a Sunday morning when we would talk. And that was our, our one phone call. Uh, per week. And it's hard to believe that it's been nearly 25 years uh, since we went through that. But to kind of tie it into your point about mentoring, mm. you know, when I was going through those th three years of long distance between 94 and 97, I, I could not have known that six or seven years later that those experiences would be the kernel of a lesson that I could pass on to someone like you who was going through a similar set of circumstances with George. Mm. But I think, I think one of the keys to becoming an effective mentor 
is to recognize that those everyday life experiences that you go through are teaching moments for someone else. So, so we actually started at the law school, a mentoring program about three or four years ago. And the basic commitment was that every incoming student would be matched with a four-person mentorship team, one of whom was either an alum or a professional with whom they had some sort of common affinity. And one of my favorite stories in the process of recruiting those mentors was a woman in Savannah, Georgia, who at the end of the pitch came up to me and she handed me her business card and she goes, I know exactly who I want to mentor. I go, who's that? She goes, I want to mentor the law student who has no idea what they want to do. Because <laughs> that was me. And, and I thought there was something really beautiful in that because she recognized far later in her career that that essential thing that she went through, much like the long distance thing that defined Bearded and me in law school, could be a connection point for somebody 5, 10, 20 years later who is going through something similar. That's amazing. And I, I also think it's that whole idea of you have no idea what you have to offer somebody as well. In terms of being a mentor, if somebody asks you to be a mentor, be a mentor. People seem to kind of shy away from it and say, what, what have I done to mentor somebody else? And actually, you could have had a life experience that could be exactly what somebody needs to know they're going to get through. You know, it could be that you have a job that somebody is trying to get to. You may have left a job that someone is also trying to leave. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have been, you know, president of this or captain of that, or the number one, this, or the number one, that, like, that's not the prerequisite for being a mentor. Being a mentor is somebody who's open and willing to share their experiences with others. And that's exactly what you did with me. You were, you were a professor who shared your personal life with me in order to help me get through something I was going through in my personal life. And that in itself is, 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 is a gift that you can give anybody is, is sharing a part of yourself with them. So Bo, I can imagine that you have a lot of people that actually reach out to you and ask you to be their mentor. Um, do you have any kind of top tips for people who are trying to get someone to mentor them or for any of our listeners who might be reaching out to somebody, what would, what would your suggestions be? Sure. That's, it's a great question, Kimberly. And, and I think if, if there's one piece of advice that I would give to your listeners who are looking for a mentor is I, I would never ask somebody to be a mentor by email because I think for better or for worse, the, the advent of technology has, has depersonalized communication. Mm. And, and a mentorship relationship to be effective is a highly personal connection. Mm. I think at a minimum, that connection is made in a phone call. And ideally, that connection is made in an in-person meeting. Now, maybe you send an email to, to request to set up the phone call, to request to establish the meeting. Also, just to add to that, it's really hard to say no to somebody on the phone or in person, whereas on email, it's quite easy to say no. So if you want to get a yes, try and get that meeting with somebody. And getting the meeting might be difficult as well. Sometimes it's hard to get that meeting. And sometimes you have to be very 
targeted um, with the person that you're reaching out to and also about why you want them to be your mentors. That's one of the things we talk about a lot is make sure you're, you, you tell the mentor why you want them to be your mentor. Why are you approaching them? Why are you talking to them? Unless you do already have that personal relationship with them and then you want to move that into more of a mentoring relationship. So I think that's great advice. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's right. And, and I think you're absolutely right that sometimes getting the meeting or getting the phone call can be difficult. But I think this ties into an observation that you made earlier, which is the importance of the relationship between networking and mentoring. Mm. Because your network can often be the pathway toward getting that introduction to the mentor, right? So it's a world of difference between somebody writing me out of the blue and saying, hey, can I get 15 minutes of your time yeah. versus you calling me and saying, hey, can you set aside 15 minutes to talk to this person in my network or that person writing me and saying, hey, I'm writing you at the recommendation of Kimberly Johnson. Yeah, um, that that's going to have a a resonance. And so I think it's important for your listeners, particularly those who may be feeling a little bit stuck to think about their network, not only in terms of creating opportunities, but also providing pathways for introductions to folks who can be very powerful mentors in their lives. Yeah. And there's, there's nothing people want to do more than to feel useful as well. So if somebody approaches you and says, Hey, I'm trying to find somebody that works in finance, or I'm trying to find somebody that works in, you know, marketing, do you have any contacts at all? Like I noticed that you were friends with this person on LinkedIn that, you know, you have a, you have a connection with them. Would you mind setting something up? And they could say, Oh yeah, I met them at a party once. I have no idea who they actually are, or it could be, Oh yeah, that's my you know best friend's husband, or I'm happy to make that connection. And people want to feel useful and they want to use their networks. And I think people sometimes shy away from asking for that favor because they feel like, it's putting somebody out, but again, they will say no if they need to say no, but if they can sure. make that connection for you, just ask the question. The worst thing they'll say is no. And, and, and I think, I think another piece of that that's, that's critical is when, when you do lean on your network or where you when your network leans on somebody to create the space to build a mentorship relationship, follow through is, is critical. Mm. And, and, and to speak in concrete terms, after each interaction, uh, taking the time to sit down and handwrite a thank you note to the person who took the time to see you. Again, I'm probably become a little bit of a Luddite, but I'm not a huge fan of the thank you email. Yeah. One of my favorite stories was I had a former student who was actually trying to uh, get a job going to work for a judge. Mm. And that judge went on to become a great mentor to the student. And it was, it was the judge clerk relationship. That was the crucible in which that relationship was formed. But I remember talking to the judge as the judge was deciding whether or not to hire that student versus any other number of equally qualified applicants. And the judge said something to the effect of, 
well, is there anything else that you can tell me about this student that's not obvious from the application? And I sort of paused and I said, you know, th there is, and it was something striking about this young man, which is that every time somebody did something nice for him, he hand wrote that person a thank you note, hmm. including the fact that when my secretary was working on letters of recommendations for the student, the student wrote a thank you note to my secretary. Wow. <laughs> and I'm convinced to this day that that was the tiebreaker that got this student the job because the judge saw that as such a revelatory moment in the soft skills that this student was bringing. Mm. And so tying it back into mentorship, when those doors are opened, not only to sort of use them, but also to make sure that one is sort of closing things off in a way that leaves that lasting impression, right? Because it can be that thank you note. It can be that gesture. Uh, one of the things that I remember reading, it was either Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson used to say that whenever they met someone whom they liked, they would give them a book because in doing so, the gift of the book often ensured that they would see that person again. And so to be honest with you, one of the things that I've done when I've come to know someone and I've really wanted to sort of send a signal of gratitude for them giving time is I will often send them a book. Mm. Um, and, and it may be based on something that they've shared with me, something that I've learned that they care about. When you meet somebody and you learn, for example, that they've struggled with cancer. Uh, I've, I've shared with them a book that I read that helped me when a loved one in my life was struggling with cancer or, you know, somebody else is a great fan of, you know, some uh, historical figure going, going the extra mile to basically say, you know, Kimberly, thanks so much for taking the time. I hope you enjoy the attached biography of X figure. I thought you might be interested in based on something you shared during the conversation when you were giving me advice. I mean, that may cost you 10, $15, or I suppose, you know, eight to 12 quid um, <laughs> for some of your listeners. Um, but wow, yeah. what, what a gesture like that can do in terms of launching a, a lifelong relationship with somebody. Yeah. And it's that personalization, isn't it? It's just, you're listening to them. It shows you're also listening that you've picked something up and something that they've said, relating it back to them. And you've taken the time to actually buy them something, write something, send it to them. I think, yes. yeah, I think that's absolutely wonderful advice. So one other question I have for you is what did this help you discover about yourself? So what did either a mentoring relationship that you had, so what is a being a mentor or having mentored, being mentored by someone What's that helped you discover about yourself? With respect to being a mentor, it has taught me that it's okay to become vulnerable around other people. Mm. We can reach a point in our lives professionally where it almost is seen as a sign of weakness to talk about struggles. Yeah. And being a mentor has actually made me much more comfortable talking about my own struggles, uh, whether, you know, having periods where you're struggling with your mental health and having to see a mental health professional mm. or dealing with struggles in a long distance relationship 
or dealing with struggles where you are trying to figure out how do I balance providing whatever I can for my family financially while not doing so at the, at the altar of being a good husband and a good father and sort of being there for them at football games or soccer games, I guess I can say to your American <laughs> listeners, football games to your European listeners. As a mentor, being willing to open up about that does a couple of things. For the person whom you are mentoring, it provides incredibly powerful assurance that they're going to be okay. Because everyone has something they're carrying at, at some point. And, and as a mentor, you can, if, if all you're doing as a mentor is, is kind of being a cheerleader, you, you may not be relating to that person where they are at the moment. You may actually making yourself seem a little bit more inaccessible and they think, well, I can't possibly achieve what this person has gone out and achieved. But if you sort of say to them, yeah, I've seen a psychiatrist, or you say to them, yeah, I've had days where I didn't want to get out of bed, or days where I was like, wow, I, I did not handle parenting very well when I brought the kids to school this morning. Um, it, it, it humanizes you, but more importantly, it, it gives that person a glimmer of hope to feel like it's going to be okay. Yeah. One of the things that I often say to my students whom I'm mentoring is I say one thing is unequivocally true. You will, by definition, have your worst day in law school. Mm. I don't know what it'll be. I don't know what form it will present itself. But our lives and our days are by definition relative. And we all have our worst day. Yeah. And I've had my worst day, right? Maybe not. Maybe it's, maybe it's still to come. But I know <laughs> at the moment, I've definitely had days that I was like, this is my worst day. And so I think for mentors, it, it, it's okay to make yourself vulnerable. That's fabulous. Okay, so before I let you go, we ask all of our guests the all-important question of what is the best piece of advice you've ever heard? Best piece of advice I've ever received is in your darkest, lowest moment to recognize that you're never alone. Fabulous. I think it's so important, especially now coming out of coming out of COVID, being in places that are we, none of us imagined. And I think there have been some people that are in some quite difficult situations. I think that is a fantastic reminder is that you're never alone. And there's a marvelous mentor out there for you somewhere. <laughs> so, Bo, I just want to say thank you so much. I have been absolutely honored um, not only to have had you as a professor, um, as, as a uh, <laughs> relationship guru <laughs> and as a friend, but um, I just really appreciate you coming on here today and sharing your experience with us. It's been incredible. And uh, thanks for your time. Thank you, Kimberly. Great to talk to you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please join us next week when we speak to Ali Levin, an internationally renowned coach, speaker, and facilitator, and one of my marvelous mentors. See you next week.